Good morning, church. It's a blessing to have been able to prepare our hearts for worship during the prelude with music from Wheaton College Summers Institute students. So thanks to Ian and Blaine for being with us this morning. Psalm 117 verses 1 and 2 says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This morning we remember the magnitude of God's family, that we are among the last believers of the world to praise him on this Sunday morning, June 25th. Many of our brothers and sisters in Europe and Africa and Asia have already had their church services. And as we sing this morning, we encourage you to consider how you are part of Christ's global body, worshiping him, and what a great joy that this is. Let's stand together and worship.
Estoy muy feliz de compartir con ustedes hoy que me voy a bautizar porque he creído en Jesucristo como mi Señor y mi Salvador para seguirlo cada día de mi vida. Hello, my name is Nicholas. Today, I want to publicly declare my faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. The reason why I want to be baptized is because I want to become a disciple of Jesus and live a clean, new life with him so I can find true peace and joy. Hi, my name is Lucas. I'm getting baptized today because I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior and I'm excited to start this new chapter. My name is Sarah Stair and I'm getting baptized because I want to share with my family, my friends, and my church that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Well, good morning, church family. Amen to so many being baptized here in our church this morning, isn't it? This is such a beautiful celebration. And so we continue uh, to worship with the declaration that baptism is. The Bible teaches us that baptism is, first, it is an act of obedience to Jesus. It's also, though, a means of grace given to the church. And so in the life of the church, baptism functions as this external symbol of an internal reality. With that said, it, we believe that baptism alone doesn't save. Rather, baptism outwardly declares what God has already done in saving us. Amen? So here's what that means in a little more detail. Baptism is a believer's testimony, and we're about to hear one, to the world that they belong to Jesus. As they go under the waters, they are proclaiming that their old self, enslaved to sin, has died. And as they're raised up out of the waters, they're proclaiming that their new self, freed from sin, has been raised because of the resurrection of Jesus. And this, we are reminded, is such good news. Because baptism preaches the gospel, the good news that Jesus is God, 
that his death on a cross counts as payment for our sins and that he was raised from the dead so that all who confess and believe can be saved. Amen, church? So this morning, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. And he is a friend, a brother in Christ. I've been praying for him for uh, a couple of years alongside one of our elders, Greg Frozy, uh, who's with us today. And so this is Danny Figueroa. And Danny has prepared his testimony and wants to testify to God's saving work in his life this morning before you, his church family. So Danny, excited for what you have to share, brother. Good morning, church familia. Uh, my name is Danny Figaro, as he said, and uh, I would love to share with you all my testimony. So I was raised in a Catholic household where everyone was taught the same, but uh, never really grasped the word. I met a friend back in middle school that would uh, take me to, uh, with her family to church, and I was part of uh, the band for their services as well. Um, I didn't know what to do or if I was supposed to follow, but I knew someone was definitely there with me. Through middle school and high school, I was a terrible child. Uh, <laughs> never listened to anybody and just caused all kinds of trouble. Uh, the trouble would carry on in the future and I found myself drinking, smoking, and abusing substances. Um, this trouble, well, in, uh, in 2015, uh, my friend took his own life and I had no idea how to cope with it, with the event, and didn't want to talk to anybody about it. Uh, this led to me kind of questioning myself um, if I even wanted to continue living. Uh, I moved out of state in 2017 and surrounded myself uh, with amazing individuals. This significantly helped me in decreasing my use of substances and to no longer associate with certain groups in Illinois. I later moved back in Illinois and started a new job in 2018. In that same workplace in 2021, I met an amazing individual that I that I now realize God brought into my life. Uh, that turned out to be the amazing Godsidence that Hannibal speaks of. Uh, I met her family, friends, and began to attend Wheaton Bible. Um, her mom talked about Alpha and how I should give it a go. So we both signed up. A few months before Alpha, I had a nightmare. Um, and in this nightmare, someone was trying to take my car and as I went to go look out the window, I felt claws just digging into me, and I could not move. In that moment, I cried out, Lord, please help me. And whatever had a grip on me was gone, as if it had been washed away. I was able to open up about it uh, to my girlfriend's father, as well as the Alpha group. I started to realize that the Spirit was speaking to me, and the Lord had, was sending many thoughts. The story of the gentleman in prison that cried out for help with his addiction during the night uh, and woke up the next day feeling disgusted by his old habit. The beautiful painting of Jesus knocking at the door with no handle, The Light of the World by William Holman Hunt. And finally, the amazing question asked by our Alpha leader, what do you think about baptism? These events were key points where I found myself ready to make the big leap. On April 2nd, around 1 in the morning, in prayer I submitted, Father God, I understand that I have not spoken to you properly for some time. I have come to understand my sins and accept them as part of who I was. That you please forgive me for what I have done. Lord, 
I ask that you please reach out to me and help me mend the relationship that I have damaged. Later that same day, I reached out about the baptism class. In the following weeks, I registered for both the class and CareFest. Church, today I know I am born again, and my spirit is filled with the excitement to share with you all my declaration of faith and trust in Jesus Christ and my desire to be one with Christ. As it says in Galatians 5, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And I am proud to take this next step. So Danny, I know you have visitors here today too, and you wanted to make sure that, that your friends and visitors heard that testimony. We're so grateful for you, brother, and excited for all that God is going to continue to do because he is clearly in your life and saved you for his glory. And so Danny, because it is your testimony that you just shared that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that Greg and I baptize you today in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Church, let's praise God together in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. You are alive and you are active. And so, Lord, we thank you for Danny's testimony that through uh, so many years, it was through faithful people. Um, it was through the overflow of your spirit uh, from your church um, and his now brothers and sisters in Christ that he was pointed to you again and again. So we thank you for his testimony because it is a testimony of your saving grace. And so, Lord, we pray for Danny in the weeks and months and years ahead, Lord. Uh, may he continue to grow as a man of you, as your son, uh, declaring of your grace for your glory among all nations. Lord, we are so grateful and we praise you this morning. It's in your most holy name we pray. Amen. We celebrate Danny's baptism with a new song by Dr. Payne called God is Making All Things New, as he has surely done in Danny's life and all of our lives as well. You can find it printed in the worship order. We encourage you to pick that up at the doors every week so that you can learn the new songs more quickly. Um, so you will enjoy this one. Let's stand and celebrate Danny's baptism together. Thank you. 
to someone else and wish them the peace of Christ and then you may be seated. church family. At this time, I want to invite our ushers to come to the front. As a reminder, you can give online at wheatonbible.org give in the plates as they are passed or send your offering to the church office. Uh, ushers, as you come forward, I want to invite you to begin the offering and at the same time, uh, as we receive our worship offerings, I want to invite to the platform trusted partners of our church, Ben and Christy Williams. Uh, with them, their daughter Marissa and son Dylan. Would you come up, please? Uh, ben and Christy are field directors of Josiah Venture in Ukraine, uh, along with Mission Eurasia, Little Lambs, uh, ministries. Uh, Josiah Venture is one of the three organizations that our church strongly supports in Ukraine. Last June, you as a church gave a significant offering to forward their work, and it's a delight to have Ben and Christy with us to give us an update on their ministry in Ukraine. Would you welcome them? just arrived from Ukraine this week and it's a pleasure to be here. 
Um, for me, this is really special, not just to testify to the goodness of God over the past year and a half living in Ukraine, but also because we in Bible churches, the church where I grew up, back in the 80s and early 90s, my dad came to faith at Wheaton Bible Church. I met Jesus through Awana Bible memorization programs at this church. And probably my favorite memory is 1992 Hurricane Andrew, junior high youth uh, missions trip, which our youth group went on. I was my daughter's age at that time, and it was really transformative for me to meet Jesus in this place. So I thank you so much for your investment in the kingdom. Uh, we serve in an organization called Josiah Venture, and our vision is to see a movement of God among the youth of Central and Eastern Europe that finds its home in the local church and transforms society. We train and equip youth leaders to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And uh, when the full-scale invasion began on February 24th, our team of 25 full-time staff said, our mission hasn't changed. We're called to make disciples. The context is terrible. We didn't wish this, but God is here. God is sovereign, and he's asking us to do something. And I want to say that the church has been active, and God is at work. And so we started working with church partners across the country to help evacuate people from eastern Ukraine and the war-torn areas further west and then into Europe. Um, we helped evacuate over 5,000 people from eastern Ukraine into western Ukraine and into the European Union through buses. And then also, when those buses would come back, we started purchasing humanitarian medical aid to bring to the front lines. And that humanitarian aid continues today. We were sending trucks to the front line with food and resources for churches to distribute to share food and the gospel. And to date, we've supplied over 1,000 metric tons of food. So we're talking 2.5 million meals and again, it's not necessarily only about the meal, but it's about the work of the church on the front lines, that people are coming to Christ. People are open when they see the evangelical church responding on mission. And so it's been a joy. One area that we've been forced to get involved in has been trauma and healing. Um, people are psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally very broken in Ukraine. There's about 25 million people living there right now. And so, as you see from this photo, there's 30 young people. They live as close to the war-torn area as humanly possible. And uh, they still continue to live there, but we've been able to sponsor and host trauma and healing retreats where we invite groups from dangerous areas to go out to Western Ukraine to our Carpathian Mountains, and they'll take a retreat a couple days, a couple weeks, and where they can get not only physical rest, but also they're reading the God's Word, they're going through the Psalms of Lament, and they are trying to sort out, okay, who are we, where are we, and what does it mean to continue to live day by day in a very dangerous and tumultuous place? Like my husband said, we are still in the ministry of youth leader training. We work with teenagers and college students every day. And 
In the first three months of the war, the church kind of just mobilized to do, um, to do care for the war, care for internally displaced people and refugees. However, we realized that the church's ministry still had to go on in other ways. So over the last year, we've been working to mobilize churches to continue in youth ministry. Last summer, we did 167 youth outreach programs, summer camps, and evangelism events. 90 of those were actually outside of Ukraine in 12 neighboring countries in Central and Eastern Europe that we partner with, and the rest were inside Ukraine. And so the Lord is still at work, youth ministry still continues on, and these young people are open, they're reading their Bibles, they're interested in what God has for them and for their nation. I just want to share one quick story about a youth leader, Ilya. He's from a city called Bakhmut. You might have heard about it in the news. We've been working with him for the last years to establish a youth ministry in Bakhmut. When the war began, his family lost everything, so his wife and his child moved to western Ukraine, but they stayed on mission. So they started reaching out to internally displaced youth, started an IT and computer club, young people started coming to Christ, and now we're walking with him as him and a church planting team are planting a church in western Ukraine for eastern Ukrainians who are displaced. Would you join us in praying for Ilya and youth leaders like him who are on mission sharing the gospel? Would you pray for the many camps and outreach events that we have this summer? And would you also just uh, join us in praying for an end to this terrible war? But I wanna say thank you for your partnership. Thank you for your generosity and mobilizing us into mission and being able to serve Ukrainian people in their darkest hour. Congregation, would you join? Yes. Ben and Christy, thank you so much for sharing. Congregation, thank you so much for giving. Would you uh, join in prayer now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Ben and Christy. Uh, for Marissa and Dylan, a family living in a turbulent space, but saying, Lord, here we are. Use us. Lord, we pray for uh, your continued working in Ukraine to protect the innocent, to preserve life. Lord, we pray for you to intervene to uh, sooner rather than longer bring this war to an end. Lord, we ask that you would give stamina, wisdom, and resourcefulness to Ben and Christy and their team of young leaders uh, as they seek to continue to make disciples, to provide trauma care, to have youth camps and events, to support churches. Lord, uh, we ask that you would strengthen all of Christ's church in Ukraine, responding to the overwhelming humanitarian, emotional, and spiritual needs there. Lord, uh, we pray as well as we think about John 10.10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But you, Lord Jesus, said, I have come that you might have life 
and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for his sheep, who gathers his sheep. Lord, may the contrast between the thief and the good shepherd become more and more apparent to all. Lord, we pray as well as we think of the upheavals in, in uh, power and control in Russia, uh, the uh, coup of Prigozhin uh, just these past days. Lord, we pray that you would uh, intervene and we think of uh, the words from the book of Daniel that remind us you are the king of heaven. You are just in all your ways and those who walk in pride you are able to humble. Lord Jesus, would you shine in the darkness and continue to draw many to yourself in Ukraine and in Russia and the surrounding nations. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ben and Christy, thank you so much. Hmm. Well, church, we want to continue in worship in the reading of God's Word. Our scripture today is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. You'll find this on page 128 if you are following along in your journal. Page 128 in your journal. Please stand in honor of God's Word as we read. From Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He, Jesus, said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, familia. Today, uh, we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And by now, this is Sermon 5, I believe. Uh, looking into the last week of Jesus. Um, actually, we have been from chapter 21 uh, until chapter 26, spending all this time, not just in the last week of Jesus, but on the Tuesday before the crucifixion. From chapter 21 all the way to chapter 26, 
We are looking only to the last Tuesday before Jesus gets to the crucifixion. And if you care about dates, that will be Tuesday, March 31st of year 33. Important date. Why? Because of the amount of events and the amount of confrontation and the amount of meaningful conversations and the amount of things that Jesus says about himself, his views, his kingdom, and what he expects his people to be. All this is just one day. Now, if you remember, I mentioned last week that uh, in the context of the text, Jesus is in the temple. And when he's in the temple, he's being questioned by the Pharisees, which are the religious uh, people of the time, by the Herodians, which is kind of the politicians of the time, and the Sadducees, which is uh, kind of our religious scholars of the time. Um, and they're doing everything in their power to discredit Jesus uh, and by asking provocative questions. And every time they ask a provo provocative question, Jesus, Jesus answers in such a way that chapter 22, verse 22 says that people were amazed. I need you to keep that word in mind. So profound and amazing and powerful were Jesus' answers that not only people were amazed in verse 22, but people were astonished in verse 33. Now, I want us to hyper-focus on those two words today because those two words, amazed or astonished, uh, the synonym of those words is the word wonder. In other words, the people that are interacting with Jesus and believe what Jesus is saying and, uh, and, uh, and are understanding who Jesus is, they are finding Jesus simply wonderful. Wonderful like nothing else and no one else. Now, why make that emphasis? Because I believe that that word wonder, or finding Jesus wonderful, is the word, the definition, the thing that describes what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Actually, I dare to say that if you are here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, most likely it's because you don't find him wonderful. Actually, I dare to say that if you are here and you already have a relationship with Jesus and you surrender to Jesus, it's because you found Jesus wonderful. But I also dare to say that in your relationship with Jesus, if you are not growing to be more like him, most likely it's because you are forgetting that Jesus is wonderful. So let me put it this way. Unless we find Jesus wonderful, delightful, Pleasant, great, brilliant, perfect, ideal, magnificent, breathtaking, and amazing, which are all those words, synonyms of the word uh, wonder. I think that it's really hard not only to become a Christian, but to grow in your Christianity. Unless you find Jesus wonderful every day, at all times, under any circumstance, it'll be really hard not only to become a Christian, but to continue to grow in our Christianity. Therefore, my argument is this. I think that finding Jesus wonderful is the antidote against religious behavior. See, part of the, fairy, part of the promise of the Pharisees is that they thought that if they practice all these religious things, they could earn God of, or have God own them something. I want to make the argument that finding Jesus wonderful is the antidote against idolatry. 
Because idolatry is when we put something that is not God and we treat it like God. But if you find Jesus wonderful, why would you, find, why would you get something else that is not God? I want to make the argument that if Jesus is wonderful, if you find Jesus wonderful, that is the antidote against moralism. You know what that is? When people uh, try to be good for goodness sake. They try to be good because they think that if they're good, then they're a good person. But you could do, but listen up, you could be a really good person and yet be far from God. I want to make the argument that it's only when we find Jesus wonderful that we find the antidote against spiritual apathy. That's a term I created. This is what I mean by this. That it is possible for you to come to church, to witness this amazing baptism, to worship, to hear what the Lord is doing in other parts of the world, to give money, to serve, and still not do it out of joy. But because you have to. I want to make the argument that finding Jesus wonderful is the antidote against sin altogether. Why? And I'm going to need you to remember this really clear today. Because we are all wonder-driven people. Can you say wonder-driven? We are all wonder-driven people. What I mean is that you will surrender. You will follow. You would would, uh, pursue anything you find wonderful. And if that is true, and I believe it is, then the reason why we sin is because many times we find our sin or what our sin gives us more wonderful than Jesus. We are all wonder-driven people. We surrender to those things we find better and more beautiful than Jesus. Therefore, the only solution to our struggle with sin, it'll be to find Jesus wonderful, more wonderful than anything or anybody else. Amen? So my intention today for the next two hours is to convince you that there's nothing more wonderful than Jesus. Now, you may be asking, how, do you, how, well, how are you going to do that with five verses? Watch. <laughs> These are two points we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the wonder of who he is and the wonder of who we need. I need you to do me a favor. Very personal question. Look at the person next to you if you have one and ask the question, do you find Jesus wonderful? Go ahead. Let's go with point number one. The wonder of who he is. So the Pharisees are having this conversation with Jesus. And if you were here last week, you may remember that the last question they asked Jesus is, which is the greatest commandment? Now, if you want to hear how Jesus responds, you've got to listen to the sermon from last week. But Jesus responds in such a way that, um, that they don't know what to do, basically. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to turn the tables now. So not only, not, not, not anymore the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees are going to ask him any more questions. But now Jesus is going to ask them a question, the Pharisees in specific. And in verses 41 and 42, we find this. Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, I want you to keep in mind and, and store the first question in your mind. What do you think about the Messiah? Because I'm going to go back to that question later on at the end of the sermon. 
For now, I want us to focus on the second question. Whose son is the Messiah? In other, in other words, who is the father of the Messiah? And because Jesus knows it all, there is a reason why he's asking that question. He is being intentional about asking this question. He's going to do to them the very thing that he's been doing all along. He's about to prove them that they think they know who the Messiah is, and yet they don't know who the Messiah is. Now, sister, for those of you who might be new to Christianity or new to the church, uh, the word Messiah is really important. The word Messiah is a name in Hebrew, Old Testament, that means the anointed one or anointed one or the chosen one. And the word Messiah always came along with another definition that says that this Messiah will be uh, the person that the Lord God was going to use to deliver his people and to bring freedom to his people. Now, why is it that the word Messiah is important for us? Because later on when you read the New Testament, you find that Hebrew word translated into Greek as Christos. And you can pronounce that word Christos. No, it's Christos. Christos, which is where we get the name Christ. And that's why the New Testament talks about Jesus as Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. This is what is interesting though. We know that because we have the New Testament. But the Pharisees didn't know that. Not just because they didn't have the New Testament, but because they didn't want to see it. And that's going to be a common thread that I'll bring time and time again throughout this sermon. The Pharisees could not see Jesus as the Messiah, not just because they didn't have the New Testament, but because they didn't want to see it. So you have to remember some of the character traits of the Pharisees. These are people that are full of pride. These are people that think that know it all. They, they see themselves as spiritual, spiritually superior to everyone else. And usually spiritually proud people, when someone asks them a question, they're super fast to answer. You know how I know that? Because I, I struggle with that. If I feel that I think I know something, instead of doing the right thing of stopping and thinking, I respond super quick. That's usually not a good sign, by the way. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. Jesus asks the questions, and without two seconds, without, within two seconds, verse 42 says, the son of David. Super quick. You know, I find, you know, I picture these guys having this conversation with Jesus. They already have been humiliated once in chapter 22, right? But now Jesus asked this question, and I could almost look at these guys. This is extra biblical. It's my imagination. So don't say that that's in the Bible. I could almost imagine the Pharisees looking to one another and said, nailed it. Because they got it. They know. They know the literature. They know exactly what they were supposed to say. Jesus was, uh, the Messiah was supposed to be um, the son of David. Listen up, church. And they are right. Partly right. See, they knew that Jesus was supposed to come from the line of David. Jesus did have to come from the royal family of David. Therefore, the Messiah had to be a king. And the Messiah had to be a man. So there's no problems there. That is not the problem. 
The problem, though, is that they only thought of the Messiah as this, uh, as this man that was also a king. What they failed to see, though, is that that was not the only description of the Messiah, you know? The Messiah was supposed to be a man and a king, but also a prophet, and also a priest, and also God. They knew the Bible, and yet they didn't know it. They knew that the Messiah was supposed to be a man from the family of David, therefore a king, but they did not know that this man-king was also supposed to be a prophet, a priest, and God. Prophet, priest, king, God. Now, the text that we have in front of us is going to talk to us about three of those. It's going to show us Jesus as king, He's going to show us Jesus as priest, and he's also going to show us Jesus as God. So remember, the question is this. Jesus asked the question, whose son is the Messiah supposed to be? And they respond, the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, a king. But look at what Jesus does in verse 43. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, Calls the Lord, calls the Messiah, Lord. Now, imagine the Pharisees with all their confidence, answering super quick. And Jesus says this. Hold on a second. If the Messiah is supposed to come from the family of David, and if the Messiah is supposed to be a son of David, why is it that David calls the Messiah God? That is the question. And the Pharisees are like, what? Never read that verse in the Bible, Jesus. You must be a false prophet. And Jesus then is going to give them a fraction of Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which is a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm that talked about the Messiah. And it's a psalm that David wrote. So he couldn't even, he didn't even pick another prophet, he didn't pick another writer. He used something that David himself, the king, wrote about the Messiah, and this is what it says in verse 44, a fraction of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. <laughs> I have to walk you through this, all right? And I want you to imagine the Pharisees' faces and expressions. Because when someone is spiritually proud, this is what happens. So David starts to, uh, so Jesus is using David to explain something that uh, David overheard by the Spirit of God. And this is what he says. That there's a conversation between Lord number one and Lord number two. Lord number one, we know because of the New Testament that he's got the Father. And Lord number two, we know because of the New Testament that is the God, the Son, Jesus. And in this conversation, God the Father 
says to the son, sit at my right hand until I put all of my enemies, all of your enemies under your feet. Now that phrase, sit at your right hand, is the phrase that appears so many times in the New Testament. And it means that God the Father, Lord number one, gives the Son, Lord number two, the position of highest honor and highest authority over anything and everything. That means that there's no one more important in this creation. That there's no one that has more value than, than Jesus, that no one is as beautiful, wonderful, amazing, sufficient than Jesus. This is God the Father telling that to God the Son. And then he says that he's got not only that, but he's the ultimate authority. That not only he's better and greater than anything and everyone else, but that all of his enemies one day will be completely destroyed and put under Jesus' feet. That is the whole thing. So then Jesus comes back and says to the Pharisees, verse 45, If then David calls Lord, how can he be his son? Can you follow the train of thought? So here you have the first question. Whose son the Messiah is supposed to be? Here you have the second answer, son of David. Here you have the following question, how come David calls him Lord? And now you have these people that have nothing else to say. Because in verse 46 says, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, I, I, I want to pause there for a second. Because I want you to see that this is precisely the thing that happens whenever we have an encounter with Jesus and we don't respond to him. Either your heart gets softer or your heart gets harder. No one stays the same. And from this point on, the Pharisees knew that they had to kill him. Because everyone that has an encounter with Jesus, either their heart gets softer or their heart gets harder. No one stays the same. Now, why would this thing that Jesus says be so radical and so different to any other religion in the world and so different to what these people have ever heard or read? And this is the gist of it. God, Jesus just told them that the Messiah himself had to be 100% man and 100% God. That the Messiah was supposed to be a king man, 100% man and 100% God. And now it makes sense. Why is it that Jesus has been saying so many crazy things and doing so many crazy things? Now the Pharisees could see, oh, this is why Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem, allowed people to worship him like if he was God. Oh, now we understand why is it that Jesus is forgiving sins. Oh, now we understand why is it that he's performing all these miracles. Oh, now we understand why is it that this man did everything he did. In their heads, it's because Jesus is crazy. Because he thinks that he's 100% man and 100% God. But the Bible is going to make the argument that that is the difference between Christianity and anything else. That we have a God that is 100% man and 100% God. And that's one of the things that makes Jesus so, so, so wonderful. 
So from this point on, I'm going to give you five reasons. Five reasons. Why is it that Jesus is so wonderful in light of the understanding that he is 100% God and 100% man? Ready? Do me a favor. Do a, uh, look at the person next to you and says, ask the question. Are you ready? ready? There you go. Number one. Now, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask you what the five things are. So you have to, you, you got to pay attention. Number one. Because Jesus is the God-man is the reason why we know what it means to be loved. Because Jesus is the God-man is the, the main reason why we know that what it means to be loved. See, love is always seeking for the best interest of another person. And human beings, we could love one another. But no one can love by God, like God. Why? Because we have the only God that is willing to empty himself, to humble himself, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, to come and seek for the lost, the hurt, the one without hope, the one in the slavery. Only Christianity have a, has a God that becomes a human being for the sake of his people. Only Christianity, only Christianity shows you the magnitude of God's love. No one, no one, no one can love you the way God loves you. Because no one can love you with God love. Does that make sense? See, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that we have a God that is so, so in love with his people. That is willing, for, that is willing to become that, is, that even though he's God, he's willing to become a man. Jesus, as the God-man, is the ultimate example of love and the true definition of love. That's why I find this so ridiculous, church. Please forgive me. I'm going to be a little bit, just a little bit aggressive, just, just for a second. I find this so ridiculous that we try to find the love of God in other people. I love my wife, but I cannot be her God. And I know my wife loves me, but I cannot be her God. And she cannot be my God. It's illogical for us to seek for the love of God in other people because only the God-man could love you the way he does. That's it. Number two, because Jesus is the God-man, is the reason why we know that when we are with Jesus, we are always in the best place to be. It is because God is a God-man, Jesus is a God-man, that we know that when we are in Jesus, or with Jesus, we are in the best place to be. So for example, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And that he sustains all things by the power of his word. If you notice, he's saying that Jesus' man is God. Colossians says the same thing. That in Jesus we find the fullness of God. In other words, he's telling you the same thing. That we got a God that is also a man, a man that is also God. Meaning that anything that God the Father has, God the Son has as well. Now pay attention here. If God the Father is omnipotent, meaning that he's got all power, then that means that Jesus is also omnipotent, has all power. Meaning that anything, um, 
that he's got the power to do what he wants, whenever he wants it, however he wants it. And that even if he brings or allows wrong things into our lives or painful things into our life, Jesus is still powerful. That nothing can go against him. That's why being in Jesus is the best place to be. If God the Father is omniscient, then that means that Jesus the Son is also omniscient. Meaning that God knows our past, our present, and our future. And if Jesus and God is omniscient, then nothing ever catches Jesus by surprise. Nothing ever. He knows what has happened, he knows what happens, and he knows what will happen. He's never surprised by anything. Don't you think that's the place, best place to be? Not only he is omnipotent, not only he is omniscient, but he's omnipresent. If God the Father is omnipresent, then Jesus is also omnipresent, meaning that right now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and at the same time, in a way that we don't understand, he is still with us in the Spirit. So even when you feel lonely, you are never lonely. If you are a Christian, even when you feel lonely, you are never lonely. And if God the Father is sovereign and is good and works providentially, then Jesus is sovereign, is good, and works providentially. Therefore, not only Jesus could do anything and everything, but anything and everything Jesus brings or allows is always good. And anything and everything Jesus allows not only is good, but is always for his glory. Anything and everything. The good things in life and the things that hurt. The beautiful things in life and the things that makes us suffer. Everything is under his control. I don't know if you guys remember as parents, for those of you that are parents, when you know that you're doing something and your kid does not know what you're doing. And it almost feels like, no, 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 papi, let me, let me do it, let me do it. And you're like, no, I, I got this. I got this. That's exactly what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus as God, man, is the ultimate place of rest, the ultimate place of joy, the ultimate place of security. Jesus is the best place to be. Why? Because Jesus is God, man. Reason number three, because Jesus is God, man, and king. Not only he is better and greater than David, but he's better and greater than any other human king. You know what the role of the kings was in the Old Testament? To provide to protect, and to guide. How many of those kings have we actually ever had? And yet we have the God-man that is also a king. That because he's good, he always protects, he always guides, he always provides. Can you see why God, the, the God-man king, is the ultimate provider, protector, and guide? No king like him. Why trust in any other king? Why trust in any other person with authority? Why trust in anybody else? Number four, because Jesus is the God man that is not just a king, but he's also a priest. Is the reason why we, and that we know that we are always understood and always supported. So Psalm 110, verse 4, which is not included in Matthew, but it's the verse that follows, describes the Messiah as a, as a priest, as a priest forever. 
Now, if you know anything about priests in the Old Testament, they had two responsibilities. They were supposed to do the sacrifice. I will get to that later. But right now, one of the things that, that the priest said is that um, they will go before God representing people to God, but they knew how to represent them because he knew what it means. He knew what it meant to be a human being. So, for example, as someone that was representing the people, he understood the pain, he understood the struggle, and he understood sin. Because he himself will be struggling with the same things. See, one of the qualifications to be a priest in the Old Testament is that you had to sympathize with the people you were representing. You had to understand and feel the people that you were representing. But Hebrews 4, chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is the high priest, the one that sympathizes with our weaknesses, the one that in every respect was tempted and yet without sin. And that is precisely what makes Jesus a different kind of priest. See, you don't know the weight of sin until you have resisted, says C.S. Lewis. So if there's one priest that really understands pain, that really understands his struggle, and really understands sin, is Jesus. And if that is true then, not only Jesus is the best priest, but he is the best counselor and the only one that qualifies you to understand you. There's nothing you go through that Jesus does not understand. There's nothing you struggle with that Jesus does not understand. There's nothing that causes you pain that Jesus does not understand. The difference between you and, uh, you and uh, us and Jesus is that he had no sin. Jesus as the God-man priest is the ultimate counselor that understands you and supports you when he's needed. Number five, because Jesus is the God-man and he's a priest. He's the only one that could provide, provide salvation and forgiveness. See, the other responsibility of the priest was to go before the presence of the Father once a year, before God, God once a year, and then sacrifice for the forgiveness of people's sins. But before he did that, Hebrews 7 says that he had to provide for his own sins. But here we have Jesus as man, a man that is a priest, but a man that is a priest, but also the sacrifice. So you got a man, priest, lamb. And the sacrifice, because he's like no other sacrifice, says Hebrews 7 again, that his um, sacrifice was good forever. It was only one sacrifice, and that was it. Listen up. But because he's man, priest, lamb, and God, is the only reason why his sacrifice was accepted. Do you know why? Because he's the only one that could actually sacrifice, take the wrath of God, and then resurrect. And you know why that matters? Because the resurrection says that God the Father accepted the sacrifice once for all. That when Jesus died and resurrected means that you are truly forgiven. This is one of the beautiful images about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I want you to see it. All of our lives wanting to try to be forgiven. All of our lives trying to be accepted. All of our lives trying to perform some sort of sacrifice so we could be truly, truly adopted, truly, truly loved, truly, truly forgiven. And here we have Jesus as a priest, as God, 
that goes to the cross takes the wrath of God. The Father accepts it, and then he does this. It is done. No need to do nothing else. No need to perform anything else. No need to try harder. He looks to the Father and says, it is done. Oh, but look what they're doing. And look at how much they're struggling. And Jesus says, yeah, it is done. Yeah, but they continue in their sin. And they continue to surrender to the things that they're not supposed to surrender. And Jesus turns around and says the same thing. It is done. Nothing else to do. The telestai, it is finished. It is done sitting at the right hand of the Father. Can you see why Jesus is so wonderful? Jesus is the God-man, the example of love and the, and, the, and the definition of love. Jesus as the Son-man is the ultimate place of rest, joy, and security. Jesus the God-man king is the ultimate provider, protector, and guide. Jesus, the God-man priest, is the, only, the ultimate counselor and the only one that has really understand, truly understands you and supports you. Jesus, as the God-man priest, is the Lamb of God. The, all, the only way, the ultimate way for us to, be, uh, to find forgiveness and salvation. So the question we have to ask is this. So what? Point number two. In one minute. No, three minutes. Remember how I asked you to keep the first question in mind? What do you think about the Messiah? That's a question for you. What do you think about the Messiah? Remember how I told you that we are uh, wonder-driven people? It is only when we truly believe what it means to have a God that is man, king, priest, and prophet that we find them wonderful. And that we stop looking for other wonderful things. See, three weeks ago, my family and I went to watch uh, The Little Mermaid. The newest version, super cool movie. Fully recommend it. But I'm watching the story, and you know the story. Maybe some of you guys know the story. Is this, you know, mermaid that, is, uh, that lives in this beautiful world underwater. Beautiful. But for some reason, it's not enough. So she's wanting, she's in love with the world outside the water. And it's in this world outside the water that she founds the, this beautiful guy. And not only she's in love with this beautiful world outside the water, but with this beautiful guy. And he's willing to give up one of the most beautiful things she had, her voice. And in a typical Disney way, they find a way for the girl to sacrifice the world, to get the world outside the water, to get the handsome guy, and then to get her voice. And everyone is like, <laughs> beautiful. I'm sitting there thinking, what would happen if that guy becomes an idiot? <laughs> right? Now you got this girl that dropped it all for these wonderful men. I am the little mermaid. 
You are the little mermaid. That's precisely what we have done. And yet Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and says, still done. It's still done. No, nobody more wonderful than him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask for forgiveness this morning. Because our tendency, Lord, is to continue to try to look for something that is wonderful, that will capture our minds, our hearts, and imaginations, Lord, in all created things when we have you as the God-man, as the God-man that is a prophet, a priest, and a king, as the God-man that can give us what we truly need and what we truly desire, as the God-man that did everything that was needed for us in order for us to be forgiven, as the God-man that is sitting at your right hand, Father, and says, it's done. It is finished. I pray, Lord, that uh, you bring us uh, to Jesus in such a way that we find him wonderful, more wonderful than anything else. And that you help us grow in our understanding of who he is. Because the more we understand who he is and what he did, the more wonderful he's going to become in our heads and hearts. And the less room there will be for our sin. Can you please make it happen? And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And we all say. Let's stand and respond to God's word.
one that gives us and extends this blessing to us. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all the nations. And the church says, thanks for coming, church. We love you. Have a blessed day. You are sent.